Before you listen to this episode, just a quick word on a special offer for PTO supporters and details on how you can support the show. Politics Theory Other has now been going for over three years and more than 100 episodes have been released. In that time, uh, and to my very grateful surprise, it's racked up more than a million listens across the various podcast applications. Every episode of PTO takes a considerable amount of time and work, and authors' books are always read in their entirety, something that is, is frankly and alarmingly rarely the case with a lot of interviews that you see in the mainstream broadcast media, and as much supplementary research and reading is done as is possible within the time constraints. Every episode is also edited and produced by PTO's fantastic producer Zhao, which also takes up a lot of his time and work, uh, not least in trying to make me sound more coherent than I typically do in real life. The show really couldn't exist without the support of paying supporters, and so if you're a regular listener and are able to, I'd really like to encourage you to sign up as a monthly patron. By supporting the show with £3 a month, you'll get access to extended versions of regular PTO episodes, and you'll also get a 50% discount on a print or ebook from Repeater Books. They publish lots of excellent titles, including Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization by Grace Blakely, K-Punk, The Collected and Unpublished Writings of Mark Fisher, and Abolish Silicon Valley by Wendy Liu. £5 patrons also get access to exclusive episodes of PTO Extra, shorter episodes on current events, and also episodes where supporters can put questions to recent guests. So if you would like to support the show, please go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Benjamin Bratton. We talked about his new book, The Revenge of the Real, Politics for a Post-Pandemic World. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Sensation Machines, a new novel by Adam Wilson. An endlessly twisty novel of big ideas, Sensation Machines is a brilliantly observed human drama that grapples with greed, automation, universal basic income, revolutionary desires, and a broken justice system. Adam Wilson implicates not only the power brokers gaming the system and getting rich at the intersection of Wall Street, Madison Avenue, Silicon Valley, and Capitol Hill, but all of us, each one of us playing our parts, however willingly or unwillingly, in the vast systems that define and control our lives. Joshua Cohen, author of The Netanyahu's, said about the book that Sensation Machines is precision-engineered to entertain, enlighten, and unsettle. Adam Wilson is a master craftsman with a globe-sized heart. Sensation Machines by Adam Wilson is available now and coming soon in paperback from Soho Press. And now to today's interview. There's been, I think, quite a lot of understandable scepticism towards some of the pandemic hot takery that's been published in the wake of the COVID-19 outbreak. 
But Benjamin Bratton's The Revenge of the Real, uh, I think, really doesn't fit into that category. It's a very careful and thoughtful account of not just the political, but also the philosophical implications of the pandemic, and in particular, what it means for our sense of human subjectivity. In the book, Benjamin makes the argument that the pandemic highlights how we need to start thinking of ourselves not just as subjects, but also as objects that can potentially inflict harm without any intentionality. He also writes about how to think about planning at a planetary scale in a way that neither falls prey to techno-utopianism nor a retreat into romantic localism. We talked about what the pandemic means for populism, why taking an epidemiological view of society will aid us in dealing with future crises, and we also discussed the unfortunate response of the Italian political theorist Giorgio Agamben to the pandemic and why the dominance of the baby boomers in academia has led to an overemphasis on what Benjamin describes as a negative biopolitics that can only see governance and systems of mapping and planning in sinister authoritarian terms. If you'd like to hear the extended 70-minute version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Benjamin Bratton is Professor of Visual Arts at the University of California, San Diego. He's also the Programme Director of the Terraforming Think Tank at Strelka Institute of Media, Architecture and Design in Moscow, and is the author of several books, including The Stack, which develops a comprehensive political philosophy of planetary scale computation. His new book, which was the topic of our conversation, is The Revenge of the Real, Politics for a Post-Pandemic World. So the title of the book is The Revenge of the Real, Politics for a Post-Pandemic World. And you write in the preface to the book that the pandemic is a revenge of the real. It is a non-negotiable reality that upends comfortable illusions, no matter how hard some may try to push back with their chosen form of magic. And reading that, I was reminded of the early phase of the pandemic, when in a lot of mainstream liberal commentary, there was talk about how this global public health emergency was reasserting the authority of experts and and potentially undermining the populist appeal of the nationalist right. And it does indeed seem reasonable to attribute Donald Trump's election defeat to his mismanagement of the crisis, for instance. But in the months since the earlier waves of the pandemic, it it seems maybe less clear that COVID-19 is is straightforwardly helping to reassert the power of so-called political centrists and, and technocrats. Certainly in the UK, for instance, where the very high death toll has done little to undermine the popularity of Boris Johnson's government. And of course, even the brute facts of a a mass death event like a pandemic are always mediated and contested. And I wonder if it can be perhaps seductive to forget that and almost to imagine that a disaster like COVID-19 can, in and of itself, force us to fix the problems of our societies. Can you explain what you mean by describing the pandemic as the revenge of the real and and why the reality of COVID-19 is indeed non-negotiable in your view? Sure. Thank you. Well, first of all, thanks very much for the invitation to to join you today and to talk this talk this through with your with your listeners. It's a wonderful question. Let me take it from the top a little bit so that my remarks might be in context. The way in which I suggest that we would want to try to make sense of what just happened is at least from the, in the context of what you suggest is to in addition to other things, think about the pandemic or sort of understand the pandemic as a kind of what we've lived through is a kind of massive involuntary experiment in comparative governance that different countries, different regimes, different political cultures responded to, in essence, the control variable of the virus in different kinds of ways. And that the, re- the results of this are, are more or less clear, more or less plain. And one of the things that became 
that should have been clear, but was certainly validated, is that right-wing populist regimes, and probably populist regimes in general, did really poorly that in terms of deaths per 100,000, in terms of any other kinds of metrics, and that this should represent, not necessarily will, but should represent a kind of delegitimation of perhaps what was an underlying animating logic of the wave of populism of the last 10 years in general, which might be seen as a kind of politics of the narrative, a kind of culturalist determinism by which specific kinds of arbitrary ethno-nationalist narratives appeals to magical forms of sovereign power and, and so forth. In essence, a kind of right-wing populist postmodernism that, that a narrative can actually determine and construct an underlying physical reality and subordinate it to its will. The sovereignty rests there. It simply uh, resulted in, in enormous death and destruction in the context of the pandemic, and that and that all of the ways in which that approach to understanding the how it is that complex societies would compose and organize themselves in relationship to a sort of concerted attempt to suppress or ignore or defer the underlying biological, biochemical, epidemiological, ecological reality of the world itself from which we emerge, from which politics is possible, from which society is possible, can never really succeed in the long run. And so crises like the pandemic make this explicit, but it, it obviously should, sort of, probably, you know, should have been all along. The point that I was making was not that, aha, this will inevitably lead to the collapse of the sort of wave of culturalist determinism and symbolic politics and right-wing populism, but rather that in principle it should. And so you're right that in many respects that perhaps those earlier in the pandemic may have declared mission accomplished prematurely and that there is a, we are seeing a kind of revenge against the revenge of the real and it not necessarily, not necessarily surprising. I suppose another way in which I might differentiate my um, approach to this or the way in which I tried to articulate this, this circumstance that might be different than the ones you mentioned before is I think the question of, well, let's say the relationship between expertise, scientific expertise, technical expertise, medical expertise, and the way in which these should be foregrounded and given greater capacity to provide for the, the care and services on which society depends, I don't see as a form of political centrism. I think that if we were to actually think about what it would mean to sort of reformat society's relationships to its technologies of knowledge, its biopolitics more generally, that this would necessitate and, and, and constitute a much more fundamental transformation in the institutional logic of law, nation, state, and so forth. And so part of what I try to point at, and again, you know, this is a book of political philosophy. It's not a, um, a policy manifesto. But what I try to point at with a vision of, 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 of a positive biopolitics is something that I think would be far more transformational than establishmentarian. And so you might perhaps then see centrists as being implicated on the basis of their involvement in the emergence and, and deepening of neoliberalism, perhaps. No, of course. I, I think part of the other argument that I, you know, one of the other key arguments that I think begins the book is to state quite plainly that the 
We should see the pandemic as a crisis of governance in the West, as, as symptomatic of a long-term dismantling of the principles of governance in the neoliberal era, a kind of deliberate a deliberate dismantling of the state, and with it, a deliberate dismantling of the principle of, of governance on behalf of neoliberal economics, but also maybe on a more deeper level, on behalf of, of the idea that spontaneous emergence is really all that a society needs in order to organize itself. And so the, the, the emergent effects of a neoliberal market are all that was required. Plus that the, a kind of fetishization or not fetishization, maybe the wrong word, but a kind of prioritization of the individual as the base unit of the social, as the, as the seat of sovereignty, as the kind of core unit of, the, of, of this emergence, which I think is, you know, reverberates in all sorts of other ways. There, there's also at the same time, though, as, as I tried to point out, part of this crisis of, of governance in the West, which I suggest, once again, is part of why it became so difficult for countries with, with enormous economic capacity, enormous technological capacity to do the simplest things in order to make them, in order to prevent the uh, social and economic vulnerabilities to which they were exposed. There's also a way during the same period that on the left, perhaps, that the continuous dismantling and deconstruction, um, suspicion of the very principle of governance, of authority as in principle authoritarian, was also a way in which there became a kind of article of faith that that horizontalism and spontaneous emergence is really not only an aesthetically preferable a social arrangement, but that is also all that society needs in order to in order to organize itself. And so, one of the I think sort of conclusive arguments of the book in relationship to what I articulate as a kind of positive biopolitics is that if we look at the ways in which some other countries were more successful with this, and some of the Asian the Asian countries, there needs to be a renewal of a, a logic, an ethos, a discourse, a culture of governance understood as the ways in which society is able to sense itself, model itself, and most importantly, deliberately compose itself, the kind of recursivity of, from those models, and that this deliberate self-composition, the planning, the foresight, the structuration should not be seen as a kind of unnatural imposition on the natural freedom of the spontaneous emergence, but rather as something that also emerges, that emergent systems also produce the capacity for their own self-composition. And this is a, a, a muscle, a faculty, a capability that must be refound, that must be reinvented if we are to properly confront the inevitably planetary scale conundrums such as climate change and and, my, and, and the human rights of mobility and, and so forth that, that exceed the boundaries of our Provincial, relatively provincial Westphalian state arrangements. And I would hope that it's clear that, that what I'm sketching out by that is rather, I think, importantly, decisively different than what we might take as a, a sort of run-of-the-mill centrism, as you had suggested. In what you've just said, I mean, you've already made uh, reference to the notion of biopolitics, which may not be familiar to all listeners. Could you explain what is meant by biopolitics and how it was taken up, in particular, by Michel Foucault? Yes, happy to. So, the term biopolitics emerges, as as you say, in relationship to the work, and I probably is most well known in relationship to the work of, of Michel Foucault, and also his complementary term, biopower, 
roughly what this means, and and I'm going to, for, you know, for the for code scholars out there, I'm in, inevitably going to, you know, butcher this in the in the interest of time because it's an enormously complex and rich body of, uh, you know, sort of body of work that makes this concept even possible. But cut to the chase. There was a historical shift in Western modernity and European Western modernity between the underlying logic of political power that Foucault identifies as a shift from what he calls sovereign power to biopower with the beginning of the kind of industrialization of enlightenment knowledge, with the secularization of society, with the introduction of a kind of rationality of how to deal with it with the sick, with prisoners, with students, with the mil- with the military, and so forth. In a nutshell, it's like this: that there, the sovereign power refers to an, a notion that sovereignty ultimately resides in the body of a king or a queen, or, or in, in some cases, but that the last word is with this particular person and with the in with the body of the of the sovereign in the flag, in the anthem, in the Capitol building. In these symbols that ultimately kind of you know literally embody the essence of the power from which the polis is is arranged, this shifts with the kind of disenchantment and a certain degree a kind of rationalization towards what he calls biopower, and he develops a longer discussion of, of how this itself emerges in relationship to other pandemics and the introduction of a kind of more quantitative models of risk and contagion and and, and so forth. Biopolitics, in that sense, refers to a logic of governance, not just not necessarily the state, but of governance that is interested in a kind of understanding of how to, in essence, govern life itself, like the the bodies of the citizens, and, and should they be quarantined, and what diseases might they have, and how can they, you know, how how can the collective intervene to either protect them from the from the whole or the whole from them. And it constitutes this more sort of fundamental shift of, of a governance of life rather than a governance of, you know, a kind of more symbolic will or the body of the public. So that's a, an incomplete summary of, of the idea. What has been taken up, and some of you know this quite well, in the wake of Foucault's work was a kind of a mobilization of the notion of biopolitics, not just as a way to understand a kind of epistemological shift in the logic of governance in European history, to explain why is it that we stopped having king- they stopped having kings and started having hospitals, why they stopped having why punishments worked one way and started to work a, a different way, but particularly with the work of the Italian philosopher and theologian Giorgio Agamben, but with, certainly with others. The question of biopolitics came to be associated with modernity more generally. And many of the things that Agamben found to be particularly atrocious about modernity, which begins with a, a kind of understanding of the concentration camps in Europe as a radicalization of the biopolitical imaginary. Agamben extends this to basically be, to become a kind of all-encompassing theory of the modern world in general. You say somewhere in the book that he uh, makes reference to airport security as being an example of the kind of the logic of the camps. That's right. Airport security becomes a, is just a little concentration camp. He goes on to you know basically you know suggest that almost everything that involves a kind of rationalization of space or some kind of choreography or coordination of of bodies for some kind of larger purpose is susceptible to an accusation of being a kind of variation on the concentration camp 
by Agamben, which has produced what we might call the kind of negative, this, this constitutes the kind of negative biopolitics or the way in which biopolitics has been constructed in political philosophy in this, in this negative sense. It ultimately, and again, Agamben is a theologian, you know, his work is more informed by, by Catholic theology pretty directly. It results in a kind of neo-vitalism by which life itself is understood to be a kind of you know, primordial cosmic force that is best left uncurated, that, that any kind of intervention in the process and emergence of life itself is liable to lead towards unholy outcomes. Now, his own position on this is sort of well, well developed and I think is probably more extreme than, than most would subscribe to. He wrote a series of rather bizarre essays about the pandemic that alienated him from many of his his followers. But the reason it's relevant, I think, is that is that his work, or rather the work that you know that sort of that has sort of developed in a constellation around him over the last 20, 25 years, has produced what might be understood as the kind of the a school of biopolitical thought within the humanities and social sciences more generally, which again identify as a kind of negative biopolitics. That is any kind of compositional direct intervention in the vitalist emergent forms of life is liable to be authoritarian and should be resisted on its own terms to court. And this, the language of this results in, in things that, you know, in a certain sense kind of defy belief. I, I, I talk about in the book a, a conversation I had with a German political philosopher who works on issues of AI a lot. And he was telling me about how he had told his students not to get tested for the virus because he felt that the greater danger was what he called big data biopolitics and the way in which this was leading towards turning the entire city into a camp. You know, he's sort of invoking this Agambenian logic. And what I was, you know, there's, we can, we can continue this discussion related to some other things I was talking about in the book, but that this cannot possibly serve us any further. Like there's an argument that I'm making, particularly within the sort of within the field of, of political philosophy, within the humanities, that this biopolitical school of thought, one of the things that the pandemic has made perfectly clear is that this cannot serve us, that this was when when we really needed when the world really needed a biopolitical philosophy to try to make sense of what was going on, all we had was this madness, this kind of deeply quasi-religious, anti-scientific madness from the negative critique, and, and, and that a, another vision is needed, a reboot of the principle of the biopolitical and understanding of the relationship between life and how it is that life might compose life and cultivate life and support life as a positive vision needs to be the basis of the way in which we, we think this through. Vitalism can't save us. And just on, on Agamben, because I think if one were to hear your description of him and didn't know sort of how his work had been taken up. It might be quite surprising to know that he's been, so much of his work was pretty enthusiastically taken up by the left, which given, as you say, the rooting in Catholicism and, and a very romantic, obscurantist view of the world does seem quite strange. Why do you think he, he did become such a, an important figure to the left? Because there's a strain of romantic obscuritism on the left that he was tapping into uh, <laughs> that, 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 that preceded him, that not the left as a whole, but there is a kind of romantic anti-secularism is, you know, goes back to the romantic era and, you know, and it's, you know, it's a kind of reactionary response to the demystifications of, of modernity in the 18th and 19th century and has continued with us. And I think continues with us very much in the work of not just 
really flamboyant figures like Giorgio Agamben, but also, you know, in humanities and philosophy to a certain extent in the work of people like Isabel Stengers or Bruno Latour, who also have developed a kind of explicit or implicit anti-realist, not just non-realist, but anti-realist kind of view. But the real reason, I mean, that that would be sort of the deeper reason. I think the more, you know, where it really began, though, is, is Agamben had some very interesting things to say about the about Schmidt's notion of the logic of the exception in the wake of 9-11 and kind of brought this it developed a kind of theory of the exception that the real sovereign is not the person at the top of the political organization chart. It's the person who can, who is capable of declaring a state of emergency. And so as a way of explaining what Guantanamo Bay was about and what the war on terror was about, Agamben's interpretations of Schmidt, also someone who is kind of strange that the left would find, you know, so interesting. A Nazi jurist. <laughs> a, Nazi, a Nazi jurist. But, you know, you, you, you find good ideas where you find them and you make use of them in ways that, that are, uh, I, I you know, don't have to be true to the source. I have no problem with that. But the, I think his interpretation of Schmidt was extremely useful and, you know, to explain certain kinds of things. And that became the, this kind of streak. And, and, but, you know, I'm not shy of saying it. Like, I think there is a kind of deep suspicion of, Science and technology in general on the left, uh, that I think is a, is a kind of, is a certain way, a kind of culture war within the humanities itself that I find unnecessary and, uh, unnecessary and unfortunate. It's, you know, it has certain links again with the kind of romantic movement of the 18th, 19th century with the Frankfurt School, with the May 68 generation. It's a kind of view of the world in which on one side is rationalism and science and technology, which is the side of – which is the world of war. On the other side is the world of, of a kind of intuition and interpretation of culture, of allegory, of, of, of metaphor and experience. And this is the world of, of – this is the world of, of peace. And this Manichaean battle is forever. And it, it's part of why in which the conversations around the politics of AI are the way they are. It's about the conversations about what to do about climate change in the humanities are what they are. And unfortunately, it was, it has been why the conversation around biopolitics has been what it is as well. In terms of the 68 generation, I mean, do you see the Vietnam War as, as very foundational to this in the sense that it's a case where a seemingly quite abstract, in its own terms, rational logic of attritional warfare was adopted and, and there's the Rand Corporation and so on and, and the very enthusiastic development and use of high-tech modes of warfare. Yes, of course. It's not obscure why it is that, that reason and rationality would get a bad rap in that context, and rightly so. Whether or not in, in the long run, if we look back on it, whether the proper response was a kind of embrace of spontaneous and the irrational as the sort of way out was the right way in the long run, I'm, I'm not so sure. The term I've been using to describe this effect is what I call boomer theory. That the humanities and philosophy, political philosophy more general, I, I think to a certain extent has you know, there's lots of ways in which the boomer generation has sort of tyrannized everyone who's come after them and has left a lot of difficulties in their wake. And one of the ways in which they've done that within the humanities and the philosophy is made this, the kind of May 68 Vietnam War framework permanent. That there is an idea that, that the world is organized through reason, technology, and rationality, and that the, and that the proper intellectual and political response to this is Deterritorialization, deconstruction, dehierarchalization. I am not convinced that the world is run by reason. Whatever the powers that be are, I'm not willing to say that, to conclude that they are rational. 
that they are the embodiment of any whatever we would mean by the term of reason. I I much I I would hold that in 2021, in the wake of the pandemic of the rise of populism with Trump and Bolsonaro and Modi and Johnson and any under you know litany of whatever you would want to point at, reason is tyrannized by the intensification and amplification and acceleration of something that is to me clearly unreasonable. And I, I think that the unfortunate thing is that for the, the generations that are going to have to compose a different world, to construct a different world, to give shape and form and order to a different world that can actually survive in the long run, the what humanities and philosophies my generation has bequeathed them are is an incredibly precise ability to dis, to critique and dismantle and incredibly feeble capacities to construct and compose and to imagine what might come next. And so in contrast to a negative biopolitics, in the book you advocate what you call positive biopolitics and you argue that a positive biopolitics will be crucial for navigating the world of both viral pandemics but also the climate emergency. Can you explain what that looks like to you? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to sketch. I, I will try to give some, you know, act as the a look, you know, sort of put on my thinking cap and look deep into the future of what what the widths might look like. I, I the, again, the book is a book of political philosophy. It's not a book of policy proposals, and so I meant to really kind of describe the parameters of orientation for what a positive biopolitics might mean, and what would be the kind of foundational commitments that would be necessary for it to emerge, rather than to give a detailed plan for what will happen, what will happen year by year, but. In general, I would, I would the vision would put it this way: is that first there needs to be a, as I've sort of suggested, a kind of an understanding that the political and cultural and economic conundrums and crises and circumstances in which we find ourselves are inevitably planetary in nature. That humans have always been a planetary society, have always been planetary in, in nature. We are a mi- migratory species, but that the the re- that the issues of that we identify as political culture economic issues are intrinsically planetary. And they must be defined in these terms. They must be articulated and imagined imagined as such. The principle that somehow we can, by some kind of magical ontological turn, we can scale the complexity of the problem down to the reductive scale of the attitudes and psychologies and institutions that we have at hand to deal with them, a kind of comfort zone scale of, of the nation state, for for example, needs to be let go. I think there needs to be other, you know, to, to going a little bit deeper on that, a kind of a, a real understanding of how precarious and precious life is itself. You know, one of the, I think the more profound philosophical turns that occurred during my lifetime is a rotation from, you know, even during the Carl Sagan era, that the nearby universe was likely teeming with life. And that we, we, which any day now, we're going to get a message from our neighbors next door to us. And that, and that that would be one of the most important philosophical, epistemological, cosmological events of all time. And it would. But what that's been replaced by is a rare earth hypothesis that, in fact, not only that life is extremely rare, that the, that the development of life into complex organisms is even more rare, that the complex organisms would come to emerge to produce anything like basic societies is yet more rare. And 
on and down the line that that the fact that humans as a, the primary sapient species emerged in such a way that it is possible for in a way the planet to come to know itself that is one of the things that earth has done is it's folded itself in such a way to produce a creature that is capable of thinking about thinking and producing technologies of abstraction that can conclude things like how old the planet is or is the planet getting warmer you know i i will make the argument directly that the very idea of climate change is an epistemological accomplishment of planetary scale computation without the ability of the sense and model and simulate the past present future that this abstraction this this form of planetary knowledge would have been impossible these are priceless 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 accomplishments that is you know life must be protected at all costs is kind of like another point now you know zooming from that big cosmic picture down into the level of of a society itself and how we would sort of to do this one of the key ideas i think that has to be sort of understood within the positive biopolitics is that is again this idea of a kind of self composition that that life and complex societies are capable not just of spontaneous emergence but of a kind of directed care directed self composition and that this must be this must be understood rather than rather than resisted reflexively which we see i i think in in a number of different ways and and part of that process of self composition boils down to a kind of ability to sense itself to understand like to act to sense and make sense of itself what is going on where are things how are things how are things really rather than how may they appear which an epidemiological view of so we all got kind of used to that with the epidemiology of of this pandemic of tracking contagion vectors and so on the ability second the ability to to produce models from that sense making that allow for a kind of agonistic and synthetic abstraction climate change models are an excellent example of that and third the ability to use those models to act back upon the thing that the model is modeling which maybe which we might call governance this basic sort of principle and cycle on behalf of the principle of the cultivation diversification and giving order to life right i mean like you know order means diversification you know in a opposite of order is entropy diversification is structuration in in this regard and so if you're really taking this sort of longer term view that i'm that i you know suggesting it based on your prompt that we need to be thinking about the kind of deep time of the future and what the conditions of the extension and complexification of life into that deep time might be what i mean by a positive biopolitics in relation to to a kind of eruption of the real in our relationships the viral life and microbial life and so forth with the pandemic should be it should would quite clearly be seen in relationship to other kinds of relations we may have to concentrations of carbon dioxide molecules within the atmosphere and so forth that the table of the elements becomes politicized in a way in which the the underlying chemical and biological reality of the world itself becomes the point of our attention and that we learn to see ourselves as an emergent condition from it rather than as something that exists in a kind of um in some kind of transcendental bubble but also and this is where to be clear where there's there's the kind of decisive cut with the negative biopolitics 
is that there's an explicit rejection of the idea that our own sapience and our own capacity to act back upon this is somehow unnatural, is somehow a kind of a something that, some, that is not part of that process of life itself, that our capacity of sapience and rational action back upon this is one of the things that the long-term emergence of life has accomplished. Emergence requires this capacity for recursion. And so the in, our interest in actually in being one of the seats of reason that is able to provide this kind of composition is not because we are separate from nature and stand above it, but because we're not. It's because we are what, because our sapience is one of the things that complex biological ecologies do. And so in this regard, the counterclaim I would make to the negative biopolitics that often will say, aha, the invocation of reason and composition and, and abstraction is based upon some kind of notion of a transcendental separation of human from nature. I would say, no, actually the idea that the idea that our sapience and our rationality and so forth should be prevented because it is that actually is the argument that is suggesting we are separate that we are separate from, from nature. And so there's a number of ways in which, you know, maybe we can go into a little more detail that these sort of phases of this of sensing and modeling and governance, if we take these kind of three steps, might be, you know, we could go into greater resolution on this, though there's certainly a lot of other things to discuss. On the point around modeling and big data and a certain kind of planning at the at the planetary level. I mean, I think quite a lot of people on the left would be sympathetic to some of that, but would perhaps... Indeed. Yeah, yeah. And I count myself among them. Yeah. But the, perhaps it's seen as something that is could be operative, that you could have a positive biopolitics, but not under capitalist social relations, because I think a lot of people would say, you know, capitalism inevitably entails a kind of fundamental disrespect for human welfare by treating individuals as means rather than ends and so on. To be clear, I agree with that. I had this conversation with Nick Chernick yesterday. You know, one of the things we were talking about was, you know, in a certain sense, it's like, is post-capitalism a precondition of a transformation towards this biopolitics? Or is the pause of biopolitics a precondition for the transformation towards post-capitalism? You know, to what extent does a shift in an underlying geotechnological arrangement produce a shift in a political arrangement? And to what extent is it the other way around? You know, there's some on the, you know, some who would make a kind of strong base produce a superstructure argument that suggests that it's actually the rotation in the, so it's the technical rotation. It's a technical shift. It's a rotation in social technical relations that produces the, the shift in the culture. And, I, you know, I'm agnostic as to like whichever, you know, I'm happy if it goes either way. I do not think that it is possible for any version of the sort of the, the, the in, a, in a meaningful sense of the of the positive biopolitics structure that I'm talking about in the long run to 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 be realized without there also being a transformation in the underlying political and economic structures. I think that the additional point I was make is I would not differentiate the technical shift from the economic shift. I wouldn't differentiate the social shift from the technological shift. I think this this dichotomization and distinction is is getting us in trouble and leads us inevitably to either offer a kind of technological determinist arguments or political determinist arguments. And I don't think political solutionism is actually any more productive than technological solutionism. I th think this differentiation needs to be collapsed and as soon as possible. Going back to that point about the different responses of governments around the world and different abilities to 
to deal with the pandemic. So you present a pretty favourable picture of the approaches of countries such as Taiwan and South Korea, particularly regarding their use of of data and track and tracing and, and the social norms as well that made it possible to implement those systems. And on that basis, you describe those societies as more successful than, than the United States or the, or the states of Western Europe. But I, you know, I think some people would respond by saying, well, there might be a certain form of governance that might be preferable in a pandemic, but it might be rather less so in other circumstances. And, and you also make the point that people can be hurt not only by government intervention, but also by the absence of intervention, that the fact of not being sensed, not being captured by the data, particularly in a pandemic. But I, I wonder if, the, you know, if the counterpoint to that is that if you're a South Korean leftist, for instance, and the the South Korean intelligence establishment is particularly politicized, you might not be so grateful about some of these techniques of data collection and, and management. Of course. So there's two points there. One, I think, has to do with the way in which this comparative, we would need to read the results of this comparative governance experiment, in quotes, in relationship to what were the ways in which some of the Asian technocracies were able to succeed in ways in which Western democracies were not. And vice versa. I'm not interested in making a kind of league ranking table of, of like which was better. Like there's clearly like I, – I think one of the issues though I, I will say is that, you know, part of the reason that many of the Asian countries is better was not because they use more data or more tracking or there was a more draconian lockdown. Like I mean China there was but Taiwan there wasn't. Ch- Taiwan was far less – had far less of a lockdown than most of the Western countries because they were able to have a kind of much more – competent and targeted intervention that they weren't left with the relatively dumb, blunt instrument of locking everybody up for as long as possible because we don't really know what's going on. And so we have to presume, you know, we have to presume everybody is a suspect. I think the lockdowns are a sign of a policy failure, not a policy success. Necessary, but a failure nonetheless. Exactly. Necessary, but we didn't have to do this. Like we could have been much, much better prepared and much, 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 much better organized in that regard. The other thing I was to say is that, is that I think there is in ways that are go beyond the pandemic, there's a way in which I think Sinophobia, sphere of China, but you know, of Asia more in general, has become collapsed and converged with technophobia more generally. That fear of technology has become fear of China, fear of China has become fear of technology. And so I think this is a bigger issue, but it's therefore not surprising that the presumption that people would have of why it is that many of the Asian countries were more successful is because they use more draconian technological intervention because that's that's would be the common sense interpretation and that's not really what happened it, it wasn't more draconian it was to the extent it was more technologically sophisticated it was really it was more you know it was because it was more targeted and more transparent and more nimble and it was actually existed in advance as a plan and so forth and so on and so I think we have to have a really honest discussion about like what the lessons of the pandemic were in terms of the kinds of the kinds of problems we are inevitably going to have to deal with in the future. I, I, I'm not sure the pandemic really is quite as exceptional as the person you're invoking to you know ask this pushback question would, would, would might suggest that the pandemic was weird, but right, but the normal world is not like that. I think the pandemic is more is actually closer to in many ways kind of closer to a lot of the things that we are going to have to sort of deal with in the future. And we, we should learn to deal with them better and deal with them in a way in which the West is actually willing to look to other countries and other cultures and saying, hmm, maybe we need to learn a few things from someone else for once. The second part about the about the data and the technology in this this as well, I think again, part of the let's say sort of the effect of what I see as this 
first, this unnecessary dichotomization of the social on one side and the technological on the other. But in the sort of post-68 era, this sort of valorization of the social side and, 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 and at, you know, and a kind of deep suspicion of the technological side in, in this unnecessary dichotomy is a result in which if one were to, when one tries to have a more nuanced consideration of what the role of technological systems, particularly digital computational systems, may be in the constitution and composition of the social or, epi- or in this case, epidemiological circumstances. The reflexive response, I think, from most readers and listeners is that the argument boils down to more technology will be better, more technology, more good. Like that, like this person's, Shoshana Zuboff told me that big data is bad. Bratton's telling me big data is good. And, and like there's some knob that you can go in one direction and it's either one or the other. And like you, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised at, at some of the, um, some of the responses one gets when you write a book. I'm not arguing that we need more data. I'm arguing that we need better data and that honestly that we're producing the wrong data. And, and that, that's another kind of discussion that we can, that we can kind of get into. I think one of the differences though between the ways in which data is produced, right? I, I, I'm not a fan of the idea of data extraction or data capture as if data already exists out in the world, like, and you go pick it like strawberries, like data is produced in the act of measurement and what you choose to measure is not only a technological question, it's a political, social, philosophical question. Data, data is produced in this way. And, and so I don't think the, the kind of, what has become a kind of common sense idea is that society can be understood as a, an aggregation of autonomous individuals, all of whom possess a trove of personal data. And then later, there are the predatory platforms that come and extract this personal data from them, which, which in a, a kind of cartoonish sense, we read in The Guardian or something every day as a kind of like way in which this is understood. First of all, the basic idea of understanding a society as just an aggregation of self-sovereign autonomous individuals in the first place, we know is already wrong. But perhaps more importantly, the idea that the relevant data that is needed in order for this positive biopolitics framework to work, that a society can sense itself model itself and act back upon itself. The giant archive of stuff that Facebook has, has produced in relationship to all of the kinds of likes and vacation photos and brunch pictures and all the rest of this is not really the, is not the relevant data that we actually, is not the relevant data that we actually need. And so if the person that you're talking about is like, yes, but me personally, I don't necessarily want the state or the platform to be, to first of all, sort of like identify me and my behavior and my social interactions as fundamentally a kind of individuated phenomenon that is attached to me as a person. And in this way, I completely agree with this. I, I would go take the next step and say that the fact that we have chosen that, you know, we in the whatever sense, you know, the, the powers that be, the society as it is, have chosen to deploy planetary scale computation for all the things that we could use it for. We, you know, we use it for astronomic science. We use it for earth sciences. It's told us the climate change, you know, it's inve- it has given us the idea of climate change. There's all kinds of things that's good to be used for, but the fact that maybe it's most, you know, one of its most intensive uses is the modeling and prediction of consumer behavior 
is one of the kind of world historical misuses of a technology that one could imagine, a kind of catastrophic self-own goal and what we could be using this for. And so And one which thereby also sort of undermines the possibility of more positive uses of these technologies because it contributes to this suspicion and, and paranoia. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And so there's two sides there. There's one is there's the negative effects of the misuse of this technology. And and again, if it's not clear where I'm where, what I what I'm implying by that is that the sort of conventional, what now very mainstream critics, you know, surveillance capitalism is now you know, not just a kind of left idea. It's like that, that is the Atlantic legal establishment theory of, of the internet now. It's like, this is, this is what Harvard Law School believes. And part of it is because I think, you know, parenthetically is because Atlantic legal establishment looks, you know, sees the fact that technical systems are now producing forms of de facto sovereignty that legal systems used to provide for and monopolize. And they're looking at this like, no, that's our job. Like, you know, we should be in charge of that. And so I think there's a, a fundamental kind of scandal among the elites that is at work with that. But close parentheses, it should be clear that like what I'm getting at with this idea that it's the focus on individual, the individuation as the core unit of analysis for planetary computation is, 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 is a misuse, that there's an implicit but also direct critique of, of Zuboff's for example, because we mentioned this approach of surveillance capitalism, which is, I think, quite correctly maps out all the ways in which this introduces certain kinds of manipulative and pathological relationships between platforms and individual users, but not only does not take the next step and say, well, it's the individuation of the interest of, of the modeling in the first place that is the problem. That's the focus on the individual as the core unit of analysis that is the, that is a, a deep, the deeper problem here. She actually, in a way, reinforces the idea by all the kind of remedies of like that there needs to be a counter weaponization of relationship, a further privatization of private data and private person in relationship to this platform. And that privacy and, and a kind of counter weaponized individuation is the solution to this problem. In, in essence, doubling down and tripling down on the fundamental problem in, in, in ways that I find deeply troubling. But the bigger idea, which you point to, and I completely agree, is it's not only just this misuse of this extraordinary capacity, sort of extending our sapience into, into technical systems that allow for forms of calculation and sensing and abstraction that we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, which is, you know, again, pointing at earth science as a kind of positive example here. Putting all of the resources towards all this stupid stuff makes it very, very difficult for us to do the things that we should be doing with it. We should be doing with it in the first place. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune Magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.